Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Poem Crit 101. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood intensivist, Dr. J. And if you guys remember, I shared on Instagram that our next podcast episode was going to be with a very special guest. And I'm very proud to introduce none other than my mentor and my father, Dr. Naveen Jain, who's going to be joining us today. Dr. Jane has been practicing uh, pulmonary critical care medicine for over 20 years in the Midwest area. He did his uh, training in India at Malanajad Medical College and then followed up with his residency in Chicago, pulmonary fellowship at the University of South Florida, and critical care fellowship at the University of Massachusetts before settling in the Midwest. So welcome, Dr. Jane. Thank you very much. All right, so I have a few questions for you today. I think what we wanted to focus on was really your experiences in the biz over the last 20 years. And uh, what I want to get started with is how did you end up in Poem Crit to begin with? Well, this is a very interesting story. As you mentioned that I uh, grew up in India and had my initial training there. And then uh, when I was doing my residency in internal medicine in Chicago, um, there was a rotation that I did in ICU. And over there, uh, I was able to see so many patients who were ending up on the ventilator for medical illness and post-operative care and recovering from that. Where I had my training, there was no concept of critical care at that time. Um, Only patients who ended up on the ventilator were the patients with head injury uh, who will uh, eventually pass away. So let let me interrupt you here. If you had someone who had a, you know, respiratory failure from a massive pneumonia, you know, that's one of the common indications these days to put someone on the vent those guys wouldn't get vented? There was no intensive care unit. Wow. And immediately I started thinking about several patients Mm -hmm. uh, that I had seen back in India who could have been saved. Right. And that's what uh, piqued my interest into critical care, that uh, this uh, part of the medicine is amazing Mm -hmm. because I was never exposed to Mm -hmm. any such care. All the things are much different now. There was no post-op vent that I remember that I ever saw there, although I did surgery for three years uh, back there. So everybody got extubated in OR. No matter what? No matter what. Even the emergency cases, Mm -hmm. when we'll do bowel perforation cases Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night, and they still got excavated. They got excavated. And that's simply because you didn't have, they didn't have anyone to manage the vent after the case. There was no concept right, of right. Uh, post-operative uh, ventilatory management. Well, I, I can't, I cannot imagine a world without the ICU existing. And I know, and some of you may agree with this too, the rest of the hospital can't imagine a world without the ICU existing considering the number of calls we get these days to manage patients. So that's really crazy that that is so different back then. But I think things have changed Mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit uh, by now Mm -hmm. uh, that they are doing all those things that we are doing here in the United States. Yeah. So as my interest peaked into critical care, then I looked further and decided to do 
pulmonary and critical care together. So at that time, uh, was it still a combined uh, fellowship training or were people uh, doing one or the other? There were combined training and uh, mm-hmm. people were doing separately. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel lucky that I did uh, two separate programs. Okay. Uh, although not by choice, mm-hmm. but I feel at later date that uh, experience from learning from two different institutions, uh, having a different mm-hmm. approach, I feel was much more helpful in uh, opening up my mind yeah. as compared to if you were to be at one institution, right. if you do residency and fellowship at one place, then you just say, this is the only way. Absolutely. And, and that, yeah. that I think, uh, limits your horizon. 100%. I mean, you you know from my own experience where I did residency and fellowship and now where I'm currently working, it's been three different institutions. And the things that you learn from each different institution, whether they're good or bad, they you learn something from it. They teach you something and it opens your mind, like you said. And I think eventually you figure <clears throat> out what's right, what's mm-hmm. not right, what works for you. Absolutely. But if you have not seen those things being working, it's like I'll give you, and uh, maybe we'll talk about that a little later. Okay. Well, then let's move on to the next uh, question. So you kind of talked about or alluded to how things were a little bit different, you know, back when you first started training and, and um, were interested in critical care in terms of the practice of critical care. What other big things have you noticed kind of trends that have changed in management of ICU patients and pulmonary patients over time as as you've been in practice? Well there there this has been a very exciting journey over the last 25 years. When I first started uh, Swan Gans catheter was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost everybody in ICU will yeah. get a Swan Gans catheter. Now it's not being used at all. Uh, nope. Patients are still sick, probably more sicker now mm-hmm. because of more immunocompromised status. But at one time, uh, to assess the fluid status mm-hmm. and resuscitation, swan gains were very important. Mm-hmm. Other change that I've noticed over the years, sepsis and septic shock. I mean, there okay. have been so many different trials right. that have come and gone. Uh, there were a lot of antibodies that were tried, monoclonal antibodies, right. a medicine called Zygris, mm-hmm. which had a very favorable response in my opinion to begin with. Mm-hmm. But then with further studies, it favored out uh, as recent as a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maric protocol yep. with vitamin C, thiamine, yeah. and steroid was given, and that I think we used it for a year or two, and yeah, then it didn't really it got phased out. And you have a connection oh, with Dr. Merrick, don't you? I have trained with Dr. Merrick That's at the University cool. of Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and uh, then uh, so things have come and gone. Another interesting thing that uh, we used to do during my residency that when we would do IC rotation, we'll do something called uh, late in the evening and night time, mm-hmm. arterial line and central line rounds. Okay. What that meant was that at that time, it was very customary 
to change arterial line every three days. Really? And central line every seven days. Wow. Because of the line-related right. infections. But uh, that, as we know, is not being done anymore right. because of uh, uh, the more uh, taking care of the site uh, with the antibacterial uh, medications. and. Uh, what I f- also find interesting about that is the onus of the responsibility at that time it was on you as residents and fellows to look at the lines and see do they need to be changed etc and now it's on the nursing to make sure that they are cleaning them daily and sterile technique obviously it has to be watched. I mean certainly all those things have helped but it was pretty standard mm-hmm. and in fact it was a recommendation from infectious disease specialists also just need to change it every so and it's not changing over the guide wire it's going to a different site oh okay because if you're changing over the guide wire then it, the site is still right. the same now you're talking about how practices are changing one question i have for you you know since i started my training and i'm not practicing you know i have grown up in the world of low tidal volume ventilation and high peak management for our ARDS patients and obviously when we learn about ARDS we hear about the original trials where people were on these humongous volumes 10 to 12 mils per kg. Did you have patients who were on those sorts of settings and did you see the trauma that they always talk about in the trials? It was pretty standard to have a tidal volume of 1000 ml. And uh, even now, many a times, uh, you'll see some patients who come uh, post-op. Uh-huh. And uh, if it's in, uh, some senior anesthesiologist, sure. they may still use a volume of 1,000. So that, that wow. used to be standard. That now That's... they're using 400, 500. In terms of uh, volume trauma uh-huh. for these patients, uh, I don't think that uh, I personally followed up these patients mm-hmm. uh, in a study format to assess sure. if they had body trauma or not, but I'm sure okay. they did. Okay. Um, the other thing I want to discuss or really ask you is, you know, I, I know, you know, when I would come home during training and talk about cases with you, um, I would tell you about some patients that just never left me. For example, my first patient who coded on me. I'm sure you've got some memorable patients that you've never forgot. Yeah, I mean, I've got a couple of patients which are uh, rare conditions that I have seen one of each Mm -hmm. in my career, which I still uh, think about them that those patients have not uh, left my memory. Okay. Uh, One was a young girl that I saw almost... 25 years ago, mm-hmm. who was uh, came to my office because of uh, pneumothorax. And uh, wait, can I guess? Young girl, pneumothorax. Okay, I won't say anything. I'll let you so, tell the rest. She 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 left an impression because she was like she had an X-ray done which showed bilateral pneumothorax. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, walked into the office because she was referred sure and uh, eventually she was uh, found to have lamb right so let me pause you right here dr jane for those of you who are listening and don't know lamb stands for lymph angio 
my leomyotosis. I'll never get that right, no matter how long I practice. But long story short, it's a rare condition, and the class of buzzwords you guys will see on boards will be a young woman with pneumothoraces. So she had uh, typical signs. She had uh, sebaceous lesions mm -hmm. on her chin, uh, and then when we did a CT, she had tuberous sclerosis okay. finding, wow. and all those things. On this was like. Uh, almost 25 years ago and I've lost that patient to follow up because sure. I did not go to that office after about five years in there. On, the, on that time, I mean, uh, her dad was involved in the LAMB Foundation and all oh, those okay. things. And uh, since then, as we know, that, that there have been medications mm -hmm. that have come out yep. uh, for that. So she, she has never left my memory and anytime I see a young person with uh, pneumothoraces, I always think of that. Yeah, absolutely. As, as the case. Now, also another uh, a point for you guys listening to think about, um, one question they like to ask on pulmonary boards is how do you treat LAM? And it's a medicine called serolimus. It's an mTOR inhibitor. Um, so just a little uh, pearl for you guys to remember. All right. Um, there was another patient that I saw that was uh, maybe about 10, 15 years mm -hmm. ago. But again, shortness of breath and CT scan uh, had shown some uh, diffuse uh, bilateral infiltrates. Okay. So we kept on uh, working her up, did not get a diagnosis, were not able to get a diagnosis. Uh, and at that time, I was not familiar with that pattern on the CT. Mm -hmm. and I, I don't even remember now that if the patient had the same pattern or not. But uh, at some point, uh, she ended up having uh, an open lung biopsy okay. for interstitial lung disease and uh, turned out to be uh, alveolar proteinosis. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then the patient uh, had a whole lung lavage. Okay. Although I was not involved in it, that was not at the local university. Yeah. But I did see the all the models that they had collected. Wow. And uh, she did get much better after that. She was also working as a cook. Okay. So she was uh, using those spray cans with uh, oil and all those things. And I think she developed some more symptoms later on. Okay because she kept on working in that environment and that inhaling mm -hmm. oil particles may have had I've, something uh, to do. I mean, you always read about pulmonary alveolar proteinosis in your review books and you hear about it. I don't think I've actually had a case and I definitely have never seen a whole lung lavage. It's, that's pretty rare. I mean, um, those are the two cases yeah. that I can think of. I mean, race to see all COPD, lung cancer, and uh, one of the right. real, uh, cases. Now, critical care has definitely, you know, advanced and really exploded over the years just in terms of management of patients, but there's always, you know, differing opinions. And is there anything that you think maybe in how we manage critical care patients that needs to change? I don't know about change. I mean, I'm a solo practitioner to, to give that leap. Uh, to see what should be changed. One thing that uh, is somewhat uh, irritating and not helpful, and I'm not sure where this concept started, is of venous blood gases. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Uh, 
I mean, right now, in emergency room and in a lot of places, people are doing venous blood gases. I can understand that it's for the ease right. of doing it, getting the results. But I really don't know what are the normal values. Mm-hmm. So what I'm seeing is that most of the time people are using the values they get on venous blood gases as if they are arterial blood gases yep. and making changes in the patient care based on that. Uh, I wish somebody could do some study and kind of uh, publish a monogram or something. That sure. What is a normal venous blood gas? Because with a, even the pH on a venous blood gas will depend on where you're taking it from, how much tissue it has perfused and gone through. Right. So if you take it from your wrist versus you take it from a central vein, yep. those are going to be two different values on how to standardize all that. And I think that's, that's one thing that I'm noticing in critical care is being used more and more. Yeah, uh, VBGs, I mean, like you said, yes, they're easy to get. And sometimes, you know, you're in a pinch, they have poor vasculature, all you can get is a VBG. And, and like you said, you know, we, we understand that we get that. But for the uninitiated who don't realize that a VBG is not the same as an ABG, to make changes just off that VBG is, it's really not appropriate management. Um, so yeah, that, that actually is a really great study idea to see that if you were to make changes off a VBG versus an ABG, what would the results be? Would it be similar? Would there be um, major differences? Um, okay, any other things that you think are, you know, maybe not trending the right way in terms of critical care these days? I think everything else is doing better. We are doing better and better in terms of uh, patient uh, survival I mean, mm-hmm. as we went through COVID. Yeah. If uh, we did not use all the critical care uh, techniques and tools mm-hmm. that we had at our disposal, I, I think we would have had a much higher mortality. You mentioned COVID. I wanted to ask you real quick, what what was your COVID experience like? Um, I mean, I had a, my fair share of COVID patients mm-hmm. and many times it was a support and many times even after full support, they would not turn right. around. Sometimes it's a, a superimposed bacterial infection sure. on top of it that, that uh, led to their demise. Uh, but this was a very, very unpredictable I agree. illness. In a way, you feel uh, that as a respiratory uh, practitioner that we got to see this uh, 100-year pandemic. Mm-hmm. But it was not good overall because when the, before it was almost the flu pandemic right, was right. Uh, almost 100 years oh, ago. Oh yeah, 1918. I didn't even think about that. So th- that's almost to date 100 yeah. years. Yeah, I mean the the geeky side of things is that okay, or the scientific side of things, yeah, it's really cool we got to see, you know, what can happen, but the reality of it was it just there was a lot of death. Um but last question I what I want to wrap up with is what advice do you have for people who want to go into palm crit, who are just starting out their journey in palm crit? Anything that you would recommend or, or want to make sure that they know about? I think right now, as things are getting uh, more and more specialized, maybe people should think of doing one or other. Okay. Uh, instead of 
doing uh, like myself doing palm grip and sleep uh-huh. uh, it has become more specialized pulmonary itself has become more specialized right. with interventional pulmonology right. and there are people who are just dealing with pulmonary hypertension or interstitial right. lung disease so there is much more specialization of a level depending on your interest mm-hmm. and same thing with critical care what's happening now is that most of the places are asking for um in-house mm-hmm. critical care physician present 24/7 mm-hmm. so if if that's what you like that kind of a lifestyle mm-hmm. then try to focus on one or other okay. rather than doing both uh, because as the time goes on uh the market forces will force you to choose right definitely one or different other. yeah uh it will be very very hard to continue those things unless you are working in a smaller uh, geographic area sure somewhere more rural but yeah. any bigger centers is going to be very hard because they'll have close ICU with sure. uh, full time intensivists working there all right well I wanted to say thank you again Dr. Jane for sitting down and speaking with me. Um this was really great discussing kind of how critical care has changed over the years and your experiences. Um and I also want to thank you guys for all listening and taking the time. Uh if you have any questions, uh you can always email me at pomcrit101@gmail.com or remember to follow me on Instagram at pomcrit101 and remember to tune in next time we'll be going back to some wild cases.